0: So if you're looking for a pair of sunglasses that helps you stay out on the water longer, I recommend Costas. They have incredible technology that helps cut through the glare of the sun and basically keeps your eyes from being exhausted from trying to squint the whole time. And the company was founded over 35 years ago by fishermen who wanted to stay out on the water longer. So they know what they're doing. We don't love talking about gear on this show, but once you try quality, it's very hard to go back. And Costa's are quality sunglasses. You can find out more about them at costasunglasses.com. That is also in the show notes. So if you're looking for the right pair of sunglasses for your sport on the water or off the water, because they're not just for fishermen anymore. They work for all sorts of sports. Use Costa so you can see what's out there.
1: There's all this creaking, groaning, and you know, cracking going on all the time. You know, even those days when I was walking along, and there's like little fissure cracks shooting out of my feet. You know, so it's it was quite unnerving to begin with.
0: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop. Hey folks, so today's Throwback Thursday episode is with Gavin Hennigan. He's an adventurer, he's been on the show before, but this one goes back a couple years uh, where Gavin traversed Lake Baikal in Russia, which is a freshwater lake. It's the biggest and deepest in the world. It holds 20% of the world's freshwater, and it is freezing cold there. (laughs) And he was able to haul a... A, sle- a sled, 700 kilometers along the shoreline from south to north, completing the journey in 17 days. Uh, he's done, he's rode across the Atlantic. He's done a lot. And uh, you can look up his name on our episode archive and see what other things he's done. But uh, great guy, great interview done by Travis. And uh, yeah, he's just a true, true adventurer. Had a pretty rough life starting out, but cleaned up his life. And uses adventure to stay clean from from a former drug addiction, which is awesome. Um, but anyway, let's let's go ahead and get into it, and I'll tell you about our sponsors. Today's sponsors are Athletic Brewing, which are also the funders of the Adventure Sports Adventure Grant, first one ever. Maybe you can go out there and do something like this one day, and we want to help pay for it. We're giving away a thousand bucks. Apply on our website, links in the show notes. But Athletic Brewing makes incredible non-alcoholic craft beer. Amazing stuff. Helps a lot of people achieve all sorts of goals, whether that's health or, or addiction-wise or um, just a good tasting beer without the effect of alcohol. Sometimes I just enjoy that, you know. Also, Aftershocks headphones. Headphones that don't go in your ears but go against your head so you don't have your ears plugged up with something so you can hear the things around you. Really awesome idea, and they work really well. They're waterproof, Bluetooth-connected, so they're wireless. They stay out of your way, stay on your head, whether you're biking or you could be surfing and listening to this podcast. How freaking cool is that? All right, then CS Instant Coffee. They are the makers of 100% Arabica coffee in compostable packaging, little little one servings. Um, so you can take them with you in the woods, take them hiking, uh, biking, whatever. And it's really good stuff. And all those have varying levels of discounts for our listeners, and all that is in the show notes. So check out the show notes, follow the links, and you can get a deal. All right, let's get into this thing.
2: Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. So i got a great show for you today. Uh, Gavin Hennigan contacted me to tell me a few things about the the things he's done in his life. And I've got to say, this guy is Mr. Adventure on my list. I mean, of all the people we've talked to, uh, we've got some pretty pretty cool adventure sports out there and interviews and amazing stories. But Gavin runs the gamut of adventure. And just to give you a little bit of a, a background, and I'll let Gavin fill you in, the guy is a deep sea diver by day. That's his, his day job. So for most people, that would be enough of an adventure in and of itself. But when Gavin gets time off, you can find him, you know, the, the tops of mountains, uh, climbing, skiing, snowboarding, uh, hiking. Or walking lake by call and Siberia. Uh, there, you know, ultra marathons in the Arctic. There's this guy is doing everything out there. So we're gonna dig into to Gavin's life and his, his history of adventure a little bit, and uh, and hopefully we'll be entertained here. So Gavin, welcome to the show.
1: How's it going, Travis? Hello from uh, Galway in the west of Ireland.
2: Well, it's good to talk to you, man. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on and I'm excited to dig into to all these, these cool things that you've been doing. I got to be honest, I got a little bit uh, lost in your Instagram page uh, when you directed me to it because there's all these, these photos of everything you're out doing and I'm not even sure when you stop to rest because it seems like you're always out there. So, <laughs> you know, let's talk about the, the diving stuff. Um how did you get involved in diving in the beginning and why deep sea diving? Tell us a little bit about that and and honestly I'm I'm curious to know what the day in the life of a deep sea diver is like.
1: Yeah, so uh I, I got into diving um in Australia. Actually, I went out to Australia when I was um twenty one. A lot of Irish uh, young Irish people would, would go out there and uh, work on holiday visa and uh I was out there um, just working on the building sites and I'd heard about this course, um, uh, you know, commercial diving and I, I didn't really know too much about it at the time. Um, but it really sparked my interest, you know, um, I'd, uh, uh, been surfing and, uh, you know, kind of grew up on the West coast of Ireland here by the, by the, uh, the ocean. So, you know, kind of had, a, had a lot of that sort of background and, uh, it just, uh, really, uh, interested me. So I, I, you know, got a big loan out and went for this course and, um, uh, it was actually around the time of Hurricane Katrina in the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, over ten years ago and when I came out of school, dive school, um there was kind of a bit of a boom in the industry. So I kinda of lucked out and fell straight into work and um it didn't take me long to uh head offshore um working on the rigs around Southeast Asia from there, you know. So it was kinda of, all happened very quickly. But uh I sort of took to it quite well and then um yes started going working up in um in the oil fields in Asia, um, doing construction on on the oil platforms, you know.
2: So you do uh, a lot of uh, a lot of maintenance and constructions construction, and you're you're down in the depths. I mean, this is not normal construction work. Obviously, you have a lot of uh, a lot of variations in your environment that you have to deal with and train for. What's that like being down there? And what kind of depths are we talking about?
1: Yeah, so initially it started off as like an, what's called an air diver. It's just you you dive, um, say, off the side of a of a boat or a barge, um, and you go down for a couple of hours and you come back up, but After a couple of years of that, I I qualified, got enough hours up to do uh, what's called saturation diving, and that's kind of where the big big bucks is at, and that's also the more extreme side of things because you can dive. It's a technique to dive a lot deeper. So what we do is we um, we were put inside a a diving saturation chamber, which is inside a boat, and we uh, are pressurized inside this uh, pressure vessel. For um twenty eight days, and we it's our living environment, and then we transfer into what's called a diving bell, and that takes us to the bottom down to, uh, up to two hundred meters, sort of six hundred foot, in depth. Um, and then we come out of this the diving bell, uh, go to work, on the bottom, uh, for sort of six hours at a time, and then come back into the diving bell, which takes us back inside the ship, and then we go back into the chamber, and that's our our little living space and there could be you know three or six guys at a time living in there and then there's maybe you know 12 guys altogether there's three in each team and it's just sort of round the clock diving so you you just uh you know day in day out you you spend uh, your time living in this very small space it's basically like living in 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 your bathroom <laughs> with uh <laughs> yeah with uh, two other two other blokes or you know uh, five other blokes and uh yeah you you just you know spend your whole time there and then at the very end say after about three weeks uh, of you know day-to-day diving you you stay in there else you move into another chamber and then you do your decompression which is uh you know the process of getting back to uh normal atmospheric pressure and um that takes anything up to a week you know to return to uh the surface so it's um yeah it's a bit a it's a bit different than a normal nine to five um job You, you know you're you're, you're, we're breathing a completely different uh, gas mixture. Mixture. It's a different atmosphere altogether than the atmosphere that we're in right now. We're breathing anything up to 98% helium actually, because we nitrogen is narcotic at depth. So when you breathe, uh, if you were to breathe normal air, which is 78% nitrogen, uh, 21% oxygen. If you if to breathe that, anything beyond 50 meters, it's you know completely toxic and narcotic, and uh, you can't do that. So. What we do is we uh, use helium helium uh, instead, and that's uh, an inert gas also, but it has no no narcotic effect. So um, the only difference is that you speak like a chipmunk um, all the time. <laughs> so uh, we sound uh, we sound like uh, Donald Duck and the chipmunks when we're down there, you know. <laughs> Yeah,
0: that would be
2: worthy of a few recordings.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's it's absolutely hilarious um, for the first the first time you do it, but it actually wears pretty thin after a while because the the deeper you go, the harder it is to understand people, because um, you're breathing a higher and higher percentage of helium. So yeah, like I said, I think when we're down at around for anything around 150, 175 meters deep in that, you know, it's about ninety eight percent helium. So actually, when you first go in, you're you've you've trouble uh, understanding uh, the other guys you're in with. And then the people speaking to you on the surface, they actually have to have a, um, an unscrambler, you know, so, um, the, the supervisors and the life support technicians they have to, ha- un- you know, they have to have an unscrambler to be able to understand what we're saying, you know?
2: Wow. I had no idea. So, I mean, you're, you're, it's obviously not the safest environment to be in. So to, to be able to communicate with your your fellow divers and the surface is uh, highly important, you know. So yeah. the fact that they have scramblers to to make out what you guys are actually saying because your voices are so different, I, I never would have thought of that.
1: Yeah, so we have a we have a full team of what's called life support technicians, and their their job basically is to monitor our our living our living environment. So the, you know our gas mixtures are hugely important, um, what we're breathing. And our decompression schedules are are massively important because you know we don't want to be getting the bends and coming up too quickly. You know the the bends is is the, is the main danger with diving. Um, when sort of you you know fizz up uh, as as we say um you know the the if you look at a say when you have a, a glass of champagne and you see you pour a glass of champagne you see those bubbles appearing on the side of the glass. It's essentially the same thing that's happening with our bodies when we we decompress. Um, we've got compressed gas like you would in a in a bottle of uh, champagne or a bottle of coke. And then um as we come up, that is uh coming out of solution, that gas, so it's it's slowly diffusing through our tissues and coming out through our lungs. Um so if we were to come up too quickly and um, those bubbles would appear you know quicker in our in our uh, vessels and it would cause us to get the bends you know so that's you know that's obviously a, a big danger for us so we have a you know we have a full team there uh, monitoring us sort of uh, 24-7 we've kind of got cameras uh, on us while we're in the in the chambers um, and then we've got the sort of diving side of it then we've got a supervisor that you know speaks to us while we're while we're diving and yeah it's a full it's a full complement full team um on the ship you know there could be uh you know 100 people on each diving support vessel um there to sort of facilitate um us getting in the water and doing the job you know
2: yeah no doubt yeah so what are uh what are some of the coolest and some of the scariest things you've experienced down there at those depths
1: yeah you know i've i've worked many many places i've been uh pretty much all over the world with it um worked a lot in southeast Asia, like i mentioned um uh, up all over west africa and nigeria and congo equatorial guinea so i've been you know i've been to all over the middle east kuwait saudi arabia caspian Sea, Azerbaijan, kazakhstan so i've been to some pretty wild places um yes yeah, so have a few definitely a few few stories from traveling to those places um i suppose one of the ones that springs to mind is uh working in kuwait um you know working out in the middle east and uh these places west africa it's um you know there there isn't a hell of a lot of safety there it's it's pretty sort of cowboy cowboy style um you know working and um you know like working in the north sea and you know other places like that there's a lot more safety and i was working in kuwait this one time and i, I was working for this kind of construction company and i was in my early days of um saturation diving and you kind of take any work you can get you know and this particular company wouldn't be the the best record for safety but they always took on like the biggest heaviest construction jobs you know and it was always a good place to go and sort of uh, get the experience that you need to do sort of like heavy construction um, which is sort of you know doing you know big pipeline hookups you know and uh, stuff like that sort of it's basically like underwater industrial pipe fitting what we're doing you know so we were working on these big sort of 50 inch 60 inch lines you know um, and this particular job was um, uh, shallow water but it was the middle of summer it was like August in Kuwait and it was very very hot you know so we were we were actually only maybe 25 30 meters in depth but it was so so hot like the water was like bath water so we were going down in the in the diving bell and um you know we were absolutely boiling we were taking down like bottles of frozen water but you know into the diving bell with us and they would just thaw out in like you know half an hour an hour so it was just so hot but then on top of that we were working on a manifold on the bottom which is like a sort of junction of pipelines and it was there had been a leak on there and there was a huge amount of uh, kind of crude oil just like kind of um, stuck all over this um, manifold and we had to get in and first we had to clean it off to um, take out a section and it just ended up getting all over our, our umbilicals because we've got a, a hose that comes from the bell and that that uh, has our, our communication lines and our gas lines and so we're getting this crude all all over us and we were coming back to the diving bell like the there was two divers at the time me and another guy and we were swapping out and we didn't realize the time but we were actually we nearly were getting a bit high from these fumes from the from the crude oil so at one stage I came back and the and the other diver was uh kind of like almost nearly flaked out like lying inside the bell like had to kind of rouse him because um there was all this crude oil and the fumes from it were were literally toxic and he was literally pa- nearly passed out you know so it was a Pretty um, hectic sort of scenario, and we had to get in and you know make sure we clean all our uh, our the, our lines before we got back in the bell because it was a really dangerous situation, you know. But this is again working out there. The stuff of that happens, and then after that, then we had to get in and uh, into this manifold, and after we'd sort of half cleaned it, um, we had to burn uh, holes in uh, this uh, piece that we had to lift out, and you know there was still like bits of oil. Um, on this manifold and uh, there was actually at one stage I remember turning around and seeing a, 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 we were using these sort of oxy arc um, burning rods and um, I remember looking across and seeing this little globule of oil that still had caught fire underwater and it was floating uh, away <laughs> a little ball of oil on fire you know so and it only lasted like a, a half a second but uh, yeah that was probably one of the craziest things I've seen you know
2: you don't get too many opportunities to see something like that that's pretty neat yeah so (laughs) what about a scary time
1: um scary time i suppose um yeah just you know working in um i think probably one of my some of the earlier diving that i'd done when i was uh when i was air diving and before the the saturation Um, i was working in um india and um we were diving, air diving at the time now, and we were diving down to like, uh, 50, I think about 50 meters, and we were, we we're working, and had to do a quick task. And because of the, like I was mentioning with the air diving, you just dive off the side of the vessel, and, um, we were actually getting, well, nitrogen narcosis because we were diving down to 50 meters, and we, then we were, um, having to do like quick task. but um, working off India, the, the visibility is, is, is terrible in the water. It's actually, you can look, the water can look like, Literally like coffee sometimes, you know. Um, so we were going down, and it was we were trying to get this task done. That the currents were really strong, and um you know the the visibility was literally none. So I remember, remember going in and down to fifty meters, you know, really quickly. We go down in like this little basket. We they lower down on the side of the boat, and then I got down onto the pipe, and uh, I had I, I basically the nitrogen narcosis kicked in like hundred percent, and I was literally <laughs> I could just imagine me holding onto this pipeline uh, for dear life and all I could see was stars. I was completely off my head. I've, you know, <laughs> felt like I was on a lot of drugs at the time and uh, I just have this supervisor shouting in my ear saying, you know, come on, get the job done because you've literally only got, you know, five or ten minutes before you have to come back up, you know. And uh, yeah, I just... It, it just takes it takes a while to sort of adapt to that sort of nitrogen narcosis, And uh, I didn't really uh, do too well that particular dive. I don't think I got anything done to come back out and someone else is doing, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. He's yelling at you, get the job done. You're just saying, I'm still trying to figure out where the heck I am, man. Give exactly. me a second. <laughs> exactly,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: So do you ever get into these situations and does it ever – occur to you or do you ever think well you know maybe i'd just rather sit in a computer you know in front of a computer and, and do a job like that for a while or does this just does this type of work just drive you on a daily basis
1: well i mean i suppose it kind of like just to go back a little bit further to before the diving um you know when i was uh um i, w- I was in sport i was into sport as a teenager and i was uh, actually a actually competitive swimmer so i was kind of you know pretty active um but i when i was about 16 i started at um drinking uh, alcohol and using drugs quite heavily and I kind of went down that path um, you know I kind of I'm a, I'm a very sort of you know one-track mind maybe addictive personality you want to call it and I got really really stuck into that um, and I spent sort of kind of five years um, you know drifting around and getting in, in a bit of trouble with you know drugs and alcohol and I actually ended up inside a, a rehab treatment center um, you know I was using uh, a lot of heavy drugs at the time um and you know things weren't really you know good i had a you know didn't do anything for 5 years apart from do that just partying and, and doing drugs and um you know i even i i had to leave ireland at one stage i was over living over in the uk and um i lived in in this flat with a with a friend of mine, we had uh, an apartment, kind of condo. I suppose you got to call it, but it, it had no furniture in it because we didn't uh, want to spend the money on furniture. And I lived in this little one-bedroom room, and uh, I had a mattress thrown on the ground, and there wasn't even any curtains on the on the window. I had black bags taped over the window, and you know, it was just like this little dark hole. And um, you know, I'd I was in a quite a dark place myself. You know, obviously um, to go to that, and you know, um, I suppose. You know, I I had a history in my family of uh, alcohol abuse as well, and um, yeah, it was a, it was a tough time, and uh, I you know I ended up coming back when I was twenty one to Ireland, and then ending up, as I said, going into a, into a rehab and and kind of getting getting clean and um, uh, sober. Then you know, so yeah, like I, I suppose that after something like that happening. Um, you know, I didn't really want to look back, you know, and I want to try and make the most of of, of, of the life that I, that I have and um for me, um, you know, like I was always looking for a buzz from, you know, the alcohol and drugs and I think I found that, you know, I found that again through the diving, um and I found that through through the you know, adventure sports which which I got into kinda of early on, which really saved me. I think I I started um surfing um uh, probably a couple of months after I I got clean, we've got really good surf here in the west coast of Ireland, and um you know I actually I'll tell you a quick story about how, how I got into that I I was you know getting clean and you know I didn't actually have a job at the time I was on the dole here like so uh, social support what we call it in Ireland and um I uh I had a friend of mine who was also getting clean and he was a, he'd been a DJ and uh, he'd had uh, his DJ equipment and he sold it because he didn't want to be associated with the kind of party scene anymore. And he ended up, you know, selling that and he had a little bit of money and he said, Look, I wanna go I wanna start surfing. And I was like, Okay, cool, I'll be into doing that, but you know, I don't really have any money of you know, I, you know, didn't have a job or anything. And I said, Look, uh, you know, he said, I'll I'll uh, I'll buy uh, a wetsuit if you buy a board, you know? And I and I saved up <laughs> my yeah, I saved up my dough money and he bought the wetsuit and I bought the board and then we took off down the coast here in Ireland to a place called La Hinch. It's like a famous kind of little surf surf town and um you know, we're 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 driving down in the car in the middle of a storm in November in Ireland, which is you know uh, not uh, the ideal weather. But anyways, we um you know we headed out surfing, and of course he he went out first. He used the put the wetsuit on and the head out the board, and I sat in the car in the, the wind and the rain, and uh, then he came in and uh, gave me the the wetsuit and the board. Of course he pissed in the wetsuit and I had to get that on and yeah. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> it was funny and then I went out and I was uh you know I was out there in the middle of a storm in, in the west coast of Ireland in the middle of November the water is absolutely freezing and you know it just kind of I suppose at the time you know after going through what I had been through with the alcohol and the drugs and um you know that sort of dark place I'd been in I just kind of it ignited something in me and it you know it tapped into like a, a crazy energy I just I really enjoyed the, the rawness of you know the the harsh kind of winter weather in Ireland, and it just kind of it you know it opened up something for me. And after that, I you know I I, I basically became a surfer. I just was one hundred percent into surfing. And um, uh, you know one thing led to another with that. I you know I, that's kind of one of the reasons why I ended up in Australia. And then you know as soon as I found out about the diving, it was just it just made total sense to go into that. So you know for me it was you know coming back to what I was saying. It's just. You know, I didn't want to look back in my life. I just wanted to make the most of it. And for me, it was just, you know, life just seemed like an adventure. You know, uh, the diving was an adventure. You know, and then the surfing was an adventure. And it was just, you know, uh, I just wanted to follow that path no matter what. You know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a cool and inspiring story for you guys to to both at the same time dig your yourselves out of that that hole that you had had found yourself in. And I mean, to to find adventure and and get hooked on that. You know, like you alluded to, it was uh, having an, addic- an addictive personality kind of goes hand in hand with adventure, because you know people can really really get deep into adventure because of it. You get a little bit of thrill of doing something small, and it's like, well, let me, let me try something a little bit. you know it gives me a little bit more and more and more and more. So you know do you, do you kind of feel like if you didn't have adventure and you did have that desk day job that you were you would be susceptible to, to slipping back into the the alcohol and drug dependency?
1: absolutely you know that was um that was one of the main reasons i wanted to do the diving because diving you know i that sort of lifestyle really appealed to me because it was to go offshore for um you know 2 3 months at a time and then to have a, a period of time off you know a month off two months off you know um for me you know like you know doing a 9 to 5 and then just having the weekend you know it, for most people it's 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 okay you know and it, it would have probably survived, sufficed suffice to me in a way but i just really appealed to me to be able to go away and come back and then have a good month or two to really get stuck into you know an expedition or you know go somewhere on a surf trip or a snowboarding trip or whatever it is you know so that sort of um yeah really appealed to me and um I think yeah absolutely if I didn't have um you know these things in my life I you know I definitely would end up going back to that sort of alcohol and drugs for sure because you know I I've no reason to do it now like I you know I want to get to bed early so I can get up you know and go go surf or go you know go train or do whatever it is you know so it's um you know it's I think if you're having if you're having fun and you're enjoying your life um you've no reason to to go back to um the drugs and the alcohol you know and it's you know you've you've got this amazing connection to nature you know and and you feel you feel a bit more part of the planet like for me when I was um you know, using drugs, it was, it was a, it was a complete disconnect from everything. You know, it was a disconnection from, from life. And that's, you know, that's what happens when you get that dependency. And now I'm, I'm connected. I'm connected to the planet when I'm out there. And, um, you know, I'm connected to other people that I'm, you know, my friends and family and stuff. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a complete, uh, new way of life. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, yeah, you found a way to to make life, you know, it's finally clicked. You know, life is finally a meaningful instead of just wasting it away, you know, and hiding in your in your dark apartment. That's mm, for sure.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Athletic Brewing is pioneering non-alcoholic craft beer. Yeah, I said non-alcoholic craft beer. And there's a number of reasons you might want to do that. Whether you're training for an event, which a lot of our listeners are, or, you know, if, you, if you're babysitting and don't want to be drunk in case something happens. I mean, stuff happens. But you still want to sit down and enjoy the game and have a beer. This is an incredible option for a full-flavored, full-bodied beer. Each can is only 50 to 70 calories. With IPA, golden ales, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings, athletic brewing is a great option if you want that craft brewery taste uh, but not deal with the effects of alcohol itself Uh, if you'd like to save 15% on your first order go to athleticbrewing.com and use the code adventure at checkout
2: So your job, I imagine, you know, because of hazard pay and and the work schedule you have, it sounds like it also affords you that that magic formula of being able to take time off and, and get out and do some of these amazing adventures that you've done. Um, mm. What are I mean, there's a whole list. I mean, you're. I, I talked about uh, hiking Lake Baikal in Siberia. Uh, you just got back from that. Uh, you're involved in you know ultramarathons in the Arctic, uh, mountaineering splitboarding, uh, base camping in Alaska, I mean all kinds of, of stuff like that. So share with our audience some of the, the things that you do partake in when you get some time off from diving.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I've always sort of I've bounced around quite a bit between different things, you know. And uh, you know, when I when I saw your podcast and it just kind of was adventure, it just really, I thought like this is kind of made for me because, you know, I suppose I've never really defined myself by any one particular thing. You know, I've 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 surfed for um, a number of years. I you know I've I lived in Bali. Um, you know, while I was diving and I used to surf, you know, some of the, the big stuff at Uluwatu and, uh, you know, I've been all over Indonesia and, uh, Mentawi islands and, um, but then I, I actually got into snowboarding. I went snowboarding, you know, I um, through, through the surfing, obviously it's easily related, related, but when I got into the mountains and stuff, I, I just, uh, it was a whole new thing for me. You know, we have some mountains in Ireland here, but nothing like the snow capped, um, you know, like you'd get in Colorado and I went, I went snowboarding, uh, this one year in the Alps and it really, um, opened my mind up to the, the possibilities of the mountains. And, um, I just sort of went with that for, you know, a few years and, um, I got into split boarding, um, you know, which is if, if anyone doesn't, doesn't know, it's, uh, basically like ski touring for, uh, snowboarders, you know, so uh, that took me into the back country and, uh, you know, I spent, um, I think I did two seasons in Canada I spent one season kind of in Whistler um and then a, another season I came back uh, myself and a buddy uh, and another another friend the three of us uh, rented an RV and traveled uh all over British Columbia and up into Alaska um and spent four months uh, basically splitboarding non-stop and then en- ended with a, a trip to um Glacier Bay National Park, a base camp um, for two and a half, well, just over two weeks, um, which was absolutely amazing trip, you know, uh, to base camp out there in the, in the wilds of Alaska and uh, and snowboard some of the peaks out there, which are pretty much, half of them are unnamed, you know, it was, uh, it was amazing, you know, so yeah, that, you know, and then that led into um, uh, me going, uh, you know, to, Antarctica on a, on a split board expedition and then also up to Svalbard in the Arctic and another uh, splitboard expedition and yeah you know just lots of different places uh Japan Argentina um you know all over the Alps and yeah and then last year uh I you know I was f- feeling like I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more I don't know why I was reading a, an article on online I think it was on Red Bull it was like the 10 hardest races in the world and I saw this race in the arctic it's a 350 mile ultramarathon and um i just decided i kind of wanted to do it i don't know where i where i got the idea but it's um i have never done a marathon (laughs) all of a sudden i'm thinking
2: (laughs) so why not try one in the arctic
1: yeah why not try a you know 10 back-to-back or something ridiculous like that um and then uh yeah i went for this uh Crazy ultramarathon, 350 miles. Um, last last March, uh, it's called Lykke 6633. It starts just inside the or just uh, outside the Arctic Circle, um, and it takes you all the way up to the tuk tuk and the banks of the Arctic Ocean in uh, the Northwest Territories. So uh, I uh, I rang I entered this and trained in Ireland for like three months before I had this big chunk of time off and got totally obsessed with that and the training I was you know dragging tires around the mountains in ireland and buying all this cold weather arctic gear and then headed off uh to um canada to do this this race and uh it had only been it, they'd held it for seven years and i think there'd only been something like 12 finishers at the time so it was like a, wow yeah not very not many people have actually entered it you know truth be told but at the same time it you know not many people had finished it either so it was. it's definitely like um up there with one of the sort of Tough, toughest ultramarathons, you know, and it's very long, obviously, and the weather is a, a massive factor, and it's also very mentally, it was very mentally tough because there's a lot of very, very straight roads in it. um So I suppose, you know, I just I, I savored the challenge, you know, for me, the the diving, like living inside a, you know, a chamber for 28 days, like is mentally, mentally tough, you know, it's a challenge to, you know, go in there, you're you, you lose a lot of your dignity, you're, you know, you've got you're on camera, you're you're in a closed space with other guys. And there's no way you can get out, you know, there's, you know, the, you have to decompress, like you can't just say, I want out and you get out, you know, you, you, you could be seven days before you can get out of a chamber, you know, like people have said before, it's actually, it takes less time to come back from the moon than it does to come back from the depths that we work at, you know, and that's, that, that is the truth, you know, you know, it's, if you're, if something happens to you down there while you're diving, if you get injured, you know, you can't just get out and go to the hospital, you know, the, the most I the most can do is get a doctor into you and then that, that can decompress with you you know so I've kind of operated in that sort of environment that mentality you know um of you know just being at, at the mercy of uh of of that you know so I think you know transferring that into the the type of ultramarathon that was which was uh, you know kind of mentally more mentally tough than physically tough like you know if you can if you can do 100 miles you can do 300 miles you know it's it, the, the distance is kind of irrelevant it's just the amount of time you're out there you know which is you know, anything up to well, I was, I think it took me seven and a half days to finish this thing, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I suppose I really, I I really enjoyed it. You know, it was, I sort of tapped into something new again in myself, which was, uh, a way of sort of pushing myself and challenging myself, you know? Um, and, and from there, you know, things have kind of changed again for me in my life, you know?
2: Yeah. I love the, the link between, um, the, the narcotics and alcohol and, and the adventure sports that you have brought up a couple of times. And then that's the, the men, the mental strength that you have to have for that, because obviously for, you know, for someone that's, uh, is hooked on, on alcohol or, or drugs, the, that really saps your, your mental strength because you've, you've essentially given in, you know, to that, to that addiction. But like you're saying, you know, the, the ability to deal with the, the depths of, of deep sea diving or the seven and a half days running you know in in such cold temperatures uh for 350 miles there's a lot of mental strength that you have to to summon to do either one of those and to to pull yourself away from the dependency and apply that mental strength to these things is is such a really cool inspiring story i hope it reaches out to some people in the audience as well
1: yeah Um, yeah, it's funny, you know, it's something that people comment on a lot, you know, and, and, um, if, you know, if enough people say to me, like, I suppose I could be walking around really thinking to myself, God, I'm so amazingly strong and and mentally powerful and blah, blah, blah. But I actually, I actually (laughs) don't believe that myself, you know, um, because I'm, I'm a big believer in, in trying to be humble. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I, you know, I, you know, you know, these are things that I want to do, you know, I'm actually, you know, I'm going out there and I'm, I'm actually paying money to enter these things, you know, so this is like my holiday, you know, like for me, like when I look at, when I think about real mental strength, I think about my mother raising four kids on her own, you know, and, and people that are, you know, in really, really tough situations in their life, you know, and then I kind of bring myself back down to earth, you know, and, yeah, you know, look, getting through alcohol and drugs was really, really tough, and 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 that, and I suppose you know, I did, I did work really hard at it, you know, but at the same time, I think you know, I got had a lot of help, um, as well, you know, so I, I suppose, you know, it is a big part of it, but I think it's it's a balance between, um, you know, uh, you know, having you know not being too much into the ego around it, and also, um, you know, thinking that you know, at at times you know like with the diving you know you're just you're you've no choice really you're stuck in that chamber you can't get away with it and you know i, I suppose i just don't want to tap out you know I, I i wouldn't uh you know i wouldn't i wouldn't really i just want to just go through and that was the same with the ultramarathon i just said right well i'm in it now i might as well just you know just hang in there until the end you know what's the worst gonna happen you know so um it's yeah it's a funny one you know i i try not to think too much about it and um you know just keep pushing on with with a lot of the stuff that i do you know
2: <laughs> well you're obviously a humble guy and i can i can appreciate that for sure but you know you can get all the help uh in the world but in the end you're the one that truly has to do it so pat yourself on the back you know, at least a little bit hum- humility and uh, being humble is a good thing for sure but allow it for yourself <laughs>
1: no no you're right you're right i i actually um you know, I I was in. Uh, I'll you know talk more about Lake Baikal is the last thing I just did, and um, I just I actually finished it, um, and uh, it actually ended up being more than I thought because I was uh, walking in and out of these little bays and stuff. So I, I ended up doing over 700 kilometers, and I got to the end and I was sat on the uh, on the on the sled, and uh, I kind of was like, you know, there was nobody there. It was kind of like a you know, wasn't like an anti but it was just like that moment where I just finished. And I was like, wow, this is it. I finished, I'm sitting on the sled and I'm kind of look, look just over the edge of the lake and there was kind of where there was, was kind of a frozen marsh where kind of like a river came in. And I thought to myself, geez, you could probably go a bit further, you know? And, uh, you know, I was like, hang on a minute. I've just done 706 kilometers, like four, <laughs> 440 miles, you know? And I was like, this is, this is enough. And I, I need to just pat myself on the back here, you know, because I think... As somebody who's uh you know come from a, a dark place you know um you know as a as a teenager i didn't really i suppose I didn't have a lot of self worth and self confidence and that's kind of one of the other things you know the way I ended up in the alcohol and drugs thing it just sort of it was an easier easier uh way for me to go at the time um so coming back from that like i, I suppose I'd be very driven you know so um you know and it's that addictive personality like enough is never enough you know but You know, I had to stop at that moment and say, like, you know, 706K is enough. I don't need to, like, go dragging the sled any further. You know, just stop. Give myself a pat on the back. You've done well. You know, um, you've achieved a massive goal. And, yeah, just, uh, as you said, pat on the back.
2: Yeah, accept your accomplishment. And move on. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the the lake by call thing. I mean, 430 miles is a long way, and put that in perspective for people in the U.S. That's 50 miles wider or longer than the width of Colorado. So you imagine going out into Siberia and and dressing for the weather and the occasion and spending days upon days upon days walking on either snow or ice and obviously camping and living in that environment for for that amount of time and that amount of miles I mean that's a that's a pretty crazy feat what what drove you to do that there was some sort of record involved in this right
1: yeah I am um, actually I, I, I saw the pictures of the lake um, online a few years ago it's you know it's a Lake Baikal is uh, the deepest freshwater lake in the world, it's sixteen hundred meters deep at its deepest. It's I think it holds twenty percent of the world's fresh water and it completely freezes over in winter. And, you know, if anyone has never seen pictures of it, you know, just Google Lake Baikal in um winter and it's just incredible because it's crystal clear water and it freezes and it's just got this amazing looking ice, you know. Um, and you know, I, I, when I raced in, in the Arctic last, last year, I was the last third of the races on the ice roads, you know, and it was just, um, an amazing feeling being on the, sort of, on the ice like that, you know. So, um, I really wanted to go, go to, uh, Baikal. And a couple of years ago, there was actually a race on there, uh, called the Black Ice Race, um, but it was only held once. Um, and I was kind of Googling it before and thinking, oh, hopefully will be on again. I can enter it. And then, um, I was actually in, uh, I was in Nepal last, uh, last November. I was climbing uh, Amadablam, um, 6,800 meters, something like that. And then I was, um, I came back to Kathmandu and uh, I was actually going to go on, a, I was actually just about to go on an expedition to make an attempt on Annapurna, a winter, a winter ascent attempt on Annapurna. Um, which didn't work out in the end cause of the, cause of the weather, but, um, I actually got, uh, I got sick in, in Kathmandu and I was, uh, know got a stomach bug as, as you easily do And I was lying in uh, bed for a couple of days and, um, you know, just had this sort of moment where I was like, I can, I can go and just do this myself. It's probably not that big a deal. And just sort of at that moment, just made the decision to, you know, to go to, um, to Baikal that the following March, you know, um, and I actually was racing in, uh, in the Yukon again in early February. So I was back uh, for the Yukon Arctic Ultra, which was uh, the beginning of February um, in Whitehorse. So that was 300 miles. Um, you know, so I was out in Nepal for um, six, seven weeks uh, in November, December, come back to Ireland, uh, you know, did a huge amount of mileage then December, January and headed off to uh the Yukon to race in the Yukon Arctic ultra. And, uh, I ended up getting second in that. And I got the third fastest time. The guy who beat me actually, an American guy, Jan Kriska, He, um, he broke the record. and uh, he just went just under five days and I did five days in three hours. Um, and that was, I mean, an incredible race. I, I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, I planned to, to do Baikal three weeks later. So literally three weeks later, I'm on a plane on the other side of the world, uh, in, like southeast Siberia to head to <laughs> <laughs> <I've> got,
2: <laughs> Why slow down, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: and people are like, What are you doing? You've just you you know raced three hundred miles in the Yukon and I think I had six hours sleep in five days. Um and then I end up in uh in Siberia, um, with my sled, literally all the same gear. You know, it's, it's those win- the winter ultras. You know, um, or you know, you've got your sled and all your your stuff. So it's, it's essentially the same gear. So yeah, I was at head over there and I wanted to um, to try and uh, beat this fastest known time uh, by Ray Zahab and uh, Kevin Valley. They're two Canadian um, adventurers and ultra runners they did it in 13 and a half days. So um, I was solo and unsupported. So I, I, I was set up for solo and unsupported. I had uh, all my, um, everything with me, all my gear, uh, all my food for the whole crossing. And then um, I had uh, six liters of uh, Russian petrol, two stoves. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, sort of 12 kilos of food. I think I had yeah, about 60 kilos over a hundred and, 120 pounds of uh of gear in my sled and uh set off um from the south of uh Baikal on the 1st of March and headed uh headed on north and ran into trouble and in the second day both my stoves stopped working um and that's uh, scary yeah actually. yeah <laughs> I tested them pretty good but I probably could have done it a bit more but um, yeah, they were, they were Primus Omnifuels and that's a, a note to anyone out there that Primus stoves do not work with, uh, omnifuel. They just work with camping gas.
2: <laughs> well, so it was a, was it a temperature issue that you were dealing with? Uh, I don't know.
1: I don't think so. I, um, I think it was, yeah, I, I, I think it was, there's a few, um, joints in there and I think it just clogged up the, 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 the petrol and, uh, the Russian sure. petrol and, You know, I, I I since learned in hindsight that if you're going to like, okay, the reason obviously the reason why I was using petrol is that you can't get camping gas in Russia. So yeah, that's the main thing. The main it was my main concern going over there. You know, I was kind of researching it a fair bit and spoke to people and uh, yeah, like it was, you know, a case of you have to use petrol, but I learned in hindsight that, uh, um, I used actually, I I got the the best quality petrol, like over there, they've in in Russia, they've got a few different grades. And I think you guys have that in a, in america as well different grades of uh petroleum you know uh gas right yep. so we uh we don't have that arm just got one type but anyways they had i got the best type and uh, apparently someone said to me afterwards that you actually should have gotten the worst the worst one because they had there's more additives in the in the more in the more in the better quality stuff you know so yeah it didn't they didn't burn very well and then they ended up um both of them ended up kind of not working at all and i was swapping parts around and changing nozzles and um this was like day two Um, So then I had to kind of make the decision to call my contact in in Russia who had helped me in in transfers and stuff, and they were amazing. Um, uh, Tatiana at AB Tours, they were great. They went and got me um, two MSR Dragonfly stoves from a a camping store um, locally to them, and and they brought them to me Which because I was was close to the shore, close to one of these little towns in the south. And um, so I picked up two new stoves, and they also brought – Uh, five liters of paint thinner just in case because i wasn't sure whether the petrol that i was using was completely bunk and i was going to end up you know not working either so um here i am with four stoves five liters of paint thinner and six liters of uh, petrol you know um and then i went went on my merry way but obviously i'd lost my unsupported status at that stage um which i didn't mind you know i look i just wanted to keep going and, and complete the you know the whole traverse of the lake and um you know i i at that particular day i my only did i only managed five kilometers because i had to you know basically wait wait for them to come to me and, and I had to make sure the stoves were working again so you know that kind of went out the window a bit but as i said it didn't matter i just wanted to keep moving and yeah i had to end up the msr dragonfly worked perfectly with the petrol um for the rest of the trip you know and then i uh yeah i kept going to uh heading north um, to the uh, to the end of the lake, yeah, which took 17 days in the end.
0: This episode is sponsored by Aftershocks. They are headphones with bone conducting technology. So they rest in front of your ears, not inside your ears like most headphones. And the benefit is they keep your ears free. I would have felt so much safer on my bike trips if I would have had these, but... You know, I'm on the bike for 12 hours. I'm not going to not listen to something. So I did put myself at risk a lot. And I would highly recommend something that allows you to keep your ears free and be able to listen to this show or music if you choose that. But come on, you want to listen to this show. They have a six-hour battery life, awesome audio quality, and you can get $50 off the Trex Air Adventure Bundle or the Trex Titanium Adventure Bundle at asp.aftershocks.com. And that is also in the show notes. This episode is also sponsored by CS Instant Coffee, 100% Arabica coffee with compostable packaging. And you can find them at csinstant.coffee and use Adventure at checkout for 20% off.
2: Okay. So even after those delays and fighting with the stoves and waiting for a little bit of support, you still, you still were pretty close to the, to 13 and a half day record that these guys had sent.
1: Yeah. If, if, you know, at the top, yeah, if, if a lot of things had gone right, I think, yeah, definitely could have, could have gone for, it. you know, at the top, you know, it's funny the the fastest known time thing, it's, um, you know, I, I Googled around, I looked at it, I, I really only found their, um, you know, their, their account of it online and, and I saw a lot of Russians out using the lake, you know. And I didn't. It's funny. It's one of those things. I didn't at the time as well. I was wondering, is it maybe some Russians done it in ten days? You know, you just don't know. It's one of those things, you know. Um. So, you know, I just said, look, I'll just keep going and see how I go. And you know, if I if I go faster and if I don't, if I don't, it doesn't matter. I just wanted to try and finish it. And I actually was on on track for um for doing around fourteen days. But uh, when you get to the north of the lake, there's. There's no towns. It's kind of like there's nothing there, um, and it actually I got snowed in. It snowed about a foot and a half one night, and then I was it slowed me right down. So, you know, there was days where I was covering up to sixty kilometers on the bare ice, but then I when I got to this northern section, it, it snowed and it covered the ice with snow, and so I had I was wearing snowshoes and I was I was, I was feeling every every pound of the sled behind me. It was you know dragging really heavy you know, big clumps of snow in it. Um, and one day it took me the best part of 10 hours to do, you know, 10, 10, kilometers, you know, it was super slow. And, uh, I think that was probably the lowest point of, of the expedition. Cause I was, I was on, you know, I was on about day 14 at the time. And, uh, I was running out of food at that stage as well. I started to have to ration my food because I didn't know how how long it was going to take me to to get to the end. I was just kind of in no man's land. Um, there was no car, like the Russians used the lake as, a, as an ice road and in sections so that you can, you know, even if there was a bit of snow, you could kind of, you know, follow a car track. But where I was, there was nothing. So I was breaking trail myself and, um, you know, just plowing through kind of deep, deep snow. And, you know, it was really frustrating because the ice was there. It was just, it was down a few, you know, half a foot. And I could just feel it. I was just, um, you know, willing the wind to pick up to blow it off the uh (laughs) right yeah because it it actually that's what it would do the winds the winds there were incredibly strong i've never experienced anything like it you know even having been to you know patagonia and antarctica and places like that um I've, i've never experienced winds like like it in um in baikal it's just you know very very strong winds and the whole the whole lake itself is rimmed by mountains you know you've got these you know incredible peaks the whole way around it and the wind just seems to this Siberian wind that just comes down through the valleys and it, it just whips around and you, you know, you don't know which way it's come It's coming one direction one minute and the other, the next. And you think to yourself, Oh, if I just get around this headland, I'll, you
2: know, I'll be sheltered. And you get around the headland, that's, it's coming around the direction into your face, you know, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the day is full of those kind of thoughts too, because you're out there just with your own you know, thoughts. You're thinking, man, you know, we sit here and battle this wind, you know, all day long and you're willing it to, uh, to do one thing and it does the other and yeah. it's got to occupy you.
1: Yeah. It was funny. I, you know, as, as I said there, I was, there was days where, um, you know, I was like, it was so windy. I, I was really worried about, um, you know, setting up camp and, one day it was that windy that I uh, I had to, the sled was was on the ice and it was actually blowing around in front of me so the sled was taking me off and then I was losing my my grip on the on the ice I I had a uh, you know a pair of sort of uh, runner um, not sort of hiking boots sort of Hoka one one trail running shoes and I had ice spikes screwed into the bottom of them and I was losing my grip um, on the ice because of the wind and then the sled was getting blown off ahead of me and just taken off on the ice and I I had a, a, my for my tent I had ice pe- ice screws you know they're literally the most expensive tent pegs in the world um because I had, <laughs> you're right yeah I had to buy 12 of these as to use as uh tent pegs you know I had to screw screw them in you know but I had like I had an ice screw at the ready because I, I actually thought that I would have to you know put an ice screw into the ice and hook myself and in sled into it at one stage because just to you know, stop myself getting blow, blown out, blown away on the ice. Um, so it was, yeah, it was interesting. And uh, yeah, the, the first time I, I think about day, I think it was day five when um, I was on the ice and the, the ice actually creaks and groans a lot and it, there's a lot of movement in the ice because you've got this very, very long finger of a lake, you know, it's um, but it's not that wide. I think it's 80, 80 kilometers wide. Um, and then there's a lot of like pressure ridges and, you know, you've got like this sort of jumble ice that's, you know, had frozen early in the season. Then it, you know, thawed out and refrozes. So there's big sections where you, you actually have to climb over chunks of ice. And I think it's, someone told me it was on a fault line as well. So there's all this creaking, groaning and, you know, cracking going on all the time. You know, even those days when I was walking along and there's like little fissure cracks shooting out from my feet, you know. So it's it was quite unnerving to begin with, you know, but the ice is, you know three meters thick so there was nothing going to happen but it was it was quite scary so I said um I said I'd camp off the ice um one night so I went onto the shore you know this nice little kind of you know beach and uh set up set up camp there but um obviously I wasn't using the ice screws there I just had the normal my tent pegs but the the powder the snow there is uh you know probably the same as the type you get in uh, Colorado that real dry light powder you know so so I wasn't getting a lot of purchase with my uh, tent pegs in the in the snow, um, but it was a lovely evening at the time. It was a lovely sunset. I said, "Okay, it's you know I won't worry too much about it." But I I woke at two o'clock in the morning and the tent was getting blown all over the place. The winds had picked up, you know, something crazy over hundred kilometers an hour. I could just hear the trees just around me just you know making this insane noise, um, and then I was kind of spent the rest of the night kind of awake and you know hoping the tent would hold um and luckily it did and the the, the only reason the tent did hold is because um you know as you know if you're doing any winter camping you don't get out of the tent to uh go to the toilet I'd been uh, peeing in a pee bottle and then I'd, I'd been uh, <laughs> em- emptying the pee bottle out of the tent just reaching out and I'd luckily I'd right. poured it um onto the peg the tent peg around the snow on the outside and it it's like uh formed this little ice block um and
2: <laughs> F- froze it in there for you that's a good idea yeah. actually
1: <laughs> so i was uh, uh that was lucky because that was the, the the section on the outside that where the vestibule was where the wind was coming from and um yeah otherwise it really wanted to lift it off from there so uh, that was my first encounter with the wind early on and uh after that i um uh, I, I stayed on the ice i didn't care about the creaking and because you know you're with 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 12 ice screws you know you're you, it's going to take a lot to get uh, to rip those out you know
2: yeah at least you stay put yeah. well hey if you maybe what do you in that kind of wind you stayed in your tent you could have just rode the the tent all the way to the end you know <laughs> that would a quicker way to do it
1: absolutely yeah <laughs> well i was trying out a section where i was actually trying to uh, i was jumping onto the sled and trying to like ride the sled in the wind you know but it wasn't i wasn't getting too far
2: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your upcoming stuff. I, you had alluded to a um, uh, trip you're planning to row the Atlantic solo. These these trips always intrigue me. We interviewed uh, a man named Peter Bray uh, back oh well, back in September. I think it was. Um, and he's from Cornwall, England and had had done it. And I was just really intrigued with, the again, the mental stability or the mental mindset it takes to be out in the middle of the ocean by yourself for those kind of periods. So tell us about uh, the plans to do this. Uh, why? And what's the what's the reason? What's the purpose? And what do you intend to to accomplish?
1: Yeah, I, I I got the idea um, last year. I get a lot of the ideas for my trips when I'm in when I'm in the chamber at work. Um, I think <laughs> it's the kind of place where it's not the best place in the world to be. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah, and, right. uh, too, too many strange ideas come about. <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh, yeah, I suppose you know I always trying to think up you know stuff to do. So yeah, I was reading a book, um, and um, the guy was talking about rowing the Atlantic. He wrote a, a in in a pair and they he spoke about how the middle of the night when he was rowing across in the middle of the Atlantic and uh, there was like the phosphorescent plankton um that is like glowing and it was as he took each stroke with the with the oars there was like swirls of this um you know phosphorescent plankton glowing in the water and you know the milky way is above him and um yeah I just thought I'm I'm into that I'm gonna I would like to experience that and um yeah, I suppose as soon as the, as soon as I have the spark um of idea, then I'm 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 on board. Um that was kind of the, it's always been the way with, with any of the adventures, of the ideas. Just as soon as I get that initial click, um I just think, yeah, I could probably do that or maybe I could go for that and you know, I just uh, from there I just started did a bit more research and um you, you know, thought um, I'm going to go for it, and then I found out about the the Talisker whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is the which is the race that I'm doing. It's a, a ocean rowing race from uh, the Canary Islands off uh, Morocco to Antigua in the Caribbean, and it's held every year in December. And there's solo pairs and fours, so there's about twenty twenty five crews usually entered, um, and yeah, I committed to it, you know, not long after finishing that book um didn't really know what i was doing but i you know decided to go for it anyway um and trying to just work it all out now in the process of uh training for it i've got my boat i've got a a ocean roam boat um i'm actually picking it up in a couple of weeks uh, uh you know two weeks yeah yeah um i'll bring that back to ireland and start training that for the rest of the year and then uh hopefully i'll be heading off across the atlantic in december you know
2: Wow, that's gonna be cool. Well, I'll definitely uh, follow along and uh, see how you you do with that. Because, uh, like I said, I just looking on Instagram and and checking out some of the things that you're up to is uh, it's kind of mind boggling. You know, we all have our our a little adventure thing that we like to do, but you seem to be running the gamut of uh, of the various adventures. You don't seem like you're going to stop anytime soon. But that's cool. I mean, being that you know where you came from with uh, the alcohol and drug dependency. Uh, and turning it into a lifestyle like this is, uh, like I said, is truly inspiring. It's uh, I applaud you for that. Thanks, and sticking with it. Thanks, Travis. Right on. All right. So, speaking of Instagram, um, let's tell listeners where they where it is they can go see what you're up to. So, Instagram. What's your address there? Uh,
1: it's solo Gav, but solo is S O U L O G A V, and you can follow me on on Instagram and also the same on Twitter. And uh, uh Facebook.com forward slash solo gav again. Um yeah, yeah, I mean I'm I'm you know at the moment just uh getting into the training and stuff and I'm still posting some photos from Lake Baikal and there's yeah, there's plenty of stuff on there, so go check it out and uh hopefully getting i w we- I'm getting a website together at the moment as well, you know. So yeah, I'm actually gonna, you know, pursue the adventurer uh job title maybe uh i've listened to enough podcasts and read a few books at this stage and gonna definitely try and uh do a bit more of this and see if you know i'm doing a bit of public speaking um at the moment as well i'm i'm really enjoying that i've been doing some school talks for kids which is uh super fun i've uh been doing like uh where i go in and you know just do a slideshow and you know it's sort of 12 year olds and they're really into it i've got uh, ton of great photos from all the different places i've been you know lots of wildlife shots and polar bears in the arctic and and stuff like that so the kids uh, the kids are really enjoying that do that in galway and um i, I want to try and uh, um bring the i'm gonna bring the boat back and show them once i get that sort of then hopefully when i get out on the atlantic um i want to try and do like a conference call or skype call from there hopefully if i can get a decent connection um, try and like bring the the adventure into the classroom, you know. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's kind of my a good thing at the moment. I'm I'm really enjoying, you know, just doing my best to you know uh, inspire or you know be some sort of role model to to younger kids in Ireland because you know Ireland's um you know, it's it's becoming a very progressive country and you know adventure and outdoor activities wouldn't have been something that people would have done, but it's really starting to happen now you know what you know people doing get out into the mountains here and you know surfing and you know all the adventure sports so um you know just trying to you know because we're 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 a uh, we've a great history of uh you know hanging out in the pub and drinking drinking alcohol you know and, uh, you <laughs> know don't get me wrong people can enjoy that um you know sensibly um but you know it's good to uh inspire people and kids to you know get out and uh do more stuff that uh like I'm doing, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're the perfect guy for it. I mean, I can't say that I've ever run across a a person who, you know, will on their day job be 700 feet below sea level and then find themselves a week later, you know, on holiday, 22,000 feet above sea level. That's a, that's a pretty big range for somebody to exist in as a human being. So (laughs) you're definitely in a, a small minority there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'd never thought of that. Probably not sure how many people that have been deepest and been at the highest. I have to I have to get up Everest yet, and uh, yeah, maybe some sort of claim there yet. There, you know.
2: Well, I have no idea. I, no doubt, I will see you. Uh, see reports of you being up there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gavin. Well, man, thanks so much for for coming on. I mean, I could make this a three part. Uh, episode, no doubt, because there's a million questions I still like to ask you. But we'll hold it here for now, and maybe in the future we'll get you back on and have you fill us in on uh, on this open op- open ocean rowing that you're going to do. And uh, I'm sure by that time you'll have done plenty of other things that we can talk about.
1: Absolutely, yeah, I'd definitely love to get back on, and uh, yeah, hopefully get some uh, some cool stories from being out in the Atlantic.
2: Very cool, very cool. Well, keep it up, be safe, and I will definitely follow along and see where you're at. Right on, cheers, Travis. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one, Gavin.
0: First of all, thank you so much for listening to the episode. Uh, secondly, if you would like to get in touch, you can leave us a voicemail at 812 MailPod. You can also send us an email, info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Get a hold of us on Facebook, Instagram. Contact us on the website. Like, there's just a thousand ways to do it. If you know somebody that would make a good guest for the show, whether whether it's you or somebody you know with a really cool story or background or does an interesting sport, get in touch. We'd love to have them on. Also, if you'd like to be a patron, a.k.a. a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. You can sign up for as little as a buck a month. You can sign up for five bucks a month. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Go to athleticbrewing.com and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to save 15% off the best tasting and lowest calorie non-alcoholic beer you're ever going to try. Don't forget to save $50 off a headset bundle at asp.aftershocks.com. It's my new favorite way to listen to music and podcasts and stay safe while I run and ride my bike. After all this adventure talk, if you need to go to a place and buy some gear and talk to an expert, go to backpacktribe.com. They can help you choose the right gear and they have the expertise and know-how with each piece of equipment. Now get out there and do something crazy.